pastor and author Tim Keller tells an old fairy tale about a wicked witch who lived in a remote cottage in the deep forest. When travelers came through looking for lodging, she offered them a meal and a bed, and it was the most wonderfully comfortable bed any of them had ever felt. But it was a bed full of deep magic. If you were asleep in it when the sun came up, you would turn to stone. So then you became a figure in the witch's statuary, trapped until the end of time. So the witch forced a young girl to serve her, and though she had no power to resist the witch, the girl had become more and more filled with pity for her victims. And one day, a young man came looking for bed and board and was taken in. And the servant girl could not bear to see him turn to stone, so she threw sticks and stones and thistles into his bed, and it made the bed horribly uncomfortable. And every time he felt a new painful object under him, though he cast each one out, there was always a new one to dig into his flesh. As he walked out the front door, the servant girl met him, and he berated her cruelly. How could you give a traveler such a terrible bed full of sticks and stones? He went on his way, and she said under her breath, Ah, the misery you know now is nothing like the infinitely greater misery a comfortable sleep would have brought upon you. Those were my sticks and stones of love. Keller continues, he says, God puts sticks and stones of love in our beds to wake us up to bring us to rely on him, lest the end of history or of life overtake us without the Lord in our heart and we be turned to stone. So today in our passage, the Apostle Paul is going to make us uncomfortable, right? He is going to put sticks and stones in the mattress where we hide our money. And so I just want you to know that he is going to be meddling with us today. 1 Timothy 6, if you can find your way there in the Bible, um, that's where we'll be and that's what we'll be talking about, money and wealth and the desire to be rich. So let me pray for us while we, while we turn there. Lord, be kind to us now. Um, help us to receive your word as truer than any other truth, better than any other hope. Um, and give us faith so that we not just hear it, but order our lives around it. So we ask this, Christ, in your name. Amen. So this is the last chapter in the letter of 1 Timothy. And Timothy is a letter written from Paul, the Apostle Paul, the same one who wrote the letter to the Philippians we just studied together, to his younger protege named Timothy. Timothy. Good guess. Really good guess. Yes, his protege named Timothy. Timothy was pastoring the church at Ephesus, another city in Greece, and was running into some sticky situations on a number of fronts, especially concerning errant teachers. Um, Some scholars think that it was some, actually some of the other elders in the church who had been led astray and were now teaching false things that are Paul's great concern in this letter to Timothy. And Paul begins his letter to Timothy by addressing that concern about false teachers in the very first verses. This is from chapter 1. Paul writes, As I urged you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So, ouch, Paul is not really fond of these teachers or of what they are teaching, right? He's pretty hard on them, but he actually bookends the letter with his concerns. He started it in chapter 1. He's going to come back to that concern about false teachers in chapter 6 and use even stronger language. That's where we are in chapter 6, starting in verse 3. Paul says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels without, about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. So like double ouch, right? Paul is really taking these people to task. He, has, he is not fond of them. He calls them arrogant and ignorant. The New English Bible uses the phrase pompous ignoramus to describe them. They crave controversy. They're quarrelsome. They're divisive. They're depraved and deprived of truth. He is not a fan of what they are teaching and the way they are dividing the church. But there's one last descriptor um, that I want us to focus on of these false teachers, and that's in the back end of verse 5. And he says they are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And Paul saves this accusation to the last because he's going to build on it in what follows at the close of, of this letter. The heart of the matter is that they were trying to use godliness, just the living of the Christian life, as a means to get rich. Have you ever heard that? You ever run across that teaching? That if you follow Jesus, you'll get rich like me, right? Um, so I, I googled the richest preachers in America. And I'll save you the search. I'm not on it. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, I didn't make the list. Um, <clears throat> but this is what I did run across, these kind of descriptors. His ministry owns a 1,500-acre campus equipped with a church, a private airstrip, and a hangar for the ministry's $17.5 million jet and other aircraft. He resides in a $6 million church-owned lakefront mansion. Another TV preacher, it says, lives with his family in a $10.5 million home. Another owns two Rolls Royces, a private jet, and three multi-million dollar homes. Still another, it says she and her husband own a $10 million jet, several homes that cost up to $2 million each, and a $107,000 silver Mercedes sedan. The ministry's $20 million headquarters is outfitted with $5.7 million worth of furniture, including a $23,000 antique marble-topped commode. Um, Paul has no use for someone who uses their faith as a means for personal gain. So beware the leader whose lifestyle greatly exceeds that of their congregation. Right? It is a warning sign of deeper and greater concerns. Um, be on your guard against such leaders, but, but more broadly... Be on your guard against this greed finding its way into your own heart. Gordon Fee, New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says, Here were good men 
who had emerged as leaders in the church of Ephesus, but they had allowed themselves to be ensnared by Satan. They had come to love money, and it did them in. Skip down to verse 9 with me of chapter 6. And Paul says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is a really strong warning. Now he's thinking first about those false teachers but his concern is broader than that this applies to anyone who wants to get rich right and Paul's not out on a limb by himself in the scriptures with this warning the scriptures are full of it listen listen to these Uh, Psalm 62 put no trust in extortion set no vain hopes on robbery if riches increase Set not your heart on them. The book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall. Matthew, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one, love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Can't be done. Luke. Eight, Jesus says, he's talking about seeds sown amongst the thorns. They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. I could go on and on. Riches have a pull on our hearts that is nothing less than dangerous. Paul, again, look at those verses 9 and 10. Where the desire to be rich can take us into temptation, a snare, many desires that plunge us into ruin and destruction, wandering away from the faith, piercing us with many griefs. To desire wealth, to love money, is seriously dangerous. So this morning, do you want to be rich? Is that a goal of yours, an aspiration of yours? Do you find yourself loving money and hoping in it? Here are some indicators that you can think through. Do you work too much? Does your work increasingly pull you away from family and church? Do you keep score by how much money you make? Are you often anxious about money even when all the bills are paid? Is money your future hope and security? Do you shop to find joy? These are not fail-safe indicators, but their presence in your life in a recurring way should give you pause. Ask yourself, do I long to be rich? Am I falling into the love of money? You know, the... The thing that Paul points out that seems to be most indicative of when you've you've fallen into the love of money is mentioned in verses 6 through 8. Look back there with me. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. 
contentment. Are you content with what you have? The absence of contentment is sometimes an indicator of the love of money. He says contentment coupled with godliness yields a great gain and that it enables us to be content with just the essentials. Godliness is not a means to financial gain, but when you couple it with contentment, it is great gain, partly because it frees us from that fruitless pursuit of satisfaction in our money and our stuff. And then he shows us in verse 11 how you go after contentment. Look at verse 11. As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So Paul's recipe for contentment is flee and pursue. Flee the love of money and pursue godliness and these other companion virtues here. Um, Let's look first at how he urges Timothy to pursue those things. Pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. This is the stuff of following Jesus, right? This is the Christian life. And Paul's language here is strong. He says, pursue it. Go after it. That that language is used sometimes to describe persecution. Right? This is a serious pursuit of the Christian life and becoming like Christ. And you hear more of that intense pursuit in the next verse, verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So he's saying, pursue life with Christ with the zeal of a persecutor. Fight for it like a boxer or a wrestler. Run after it like someone in a foot race. Contend for it. The way you greed-proof your heart is to earnestly pursue that which truly satisfies Christ himself. So you are daily in the word and prayer. You are meaningfully engaging in sharpening protective relationships in the church. Now this is a strong exhortation and he's gonna pile on top of it a really strong charge to Timothy and to us and an equally powerful doxology. Just listen to the next few verses. Let me read them to you. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So all of this, this severe warning, the strong call to pursue godliness, this earnest charge and the exalting of Christ above all, all of this underscores how important it is for Timothy and to us to heed Paul's instructions here. I hope you can feel the weight of it. He's like piling on the seriousness of what he's saying here. And surely he's looking back at all that he taught in the letter, Um, right? This is how he's ending his letter. But it's interesting that this weighty charge and this exalted doxology is bracketed 
It's sandwiched by teaching about wealth and about money. We've just read some of it, and in verse 17, he's going to return now after this exalting of Christ back to the issue of money. Verse 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So after he charges Timothy, now he focuses on a charge for people who are in the church who are also rich. Okay? Notice he's warning the rich. He's not condemning them because the problem is not having wealth. The problem is when your wealth has you. You know, I mentioned the, the richest preachers in America, and that list that I, that I looked up, and the, the troubling accumulation of personal wealth at the expense of, of God's people. Um, but there's one guy who's on that list of the richest preachers in America, and he is a vivid contrast. Um, some of you have read some of his books. His name is Rick Warren, pastored out in California at Saddleback Church. He's on the list of the richest preachers in America, but listen to his contrast. He and his wife consider themselves reverse tithers. They keep 10% of their income and give 90% away. In an interview, he said, I drive a 12-year-old Ford. I've lived in the same house for 22 years. I bought my watch at Walmart, and I don't own a boat or jet. Right? This is a striking contrast to those who are pursuing wealth or pursuing godliness for gain. But here Paul is addressing the wealthy. And some of you are thinking, man, I'm really glad I'm not rich. This is tough. Um, you know, you, you're thinking, I'm a, I'm a poor student. I'm just an average middle class Joe. Um, I get it, right? Zuckerberg, um, Musk, those guys are rich. Not, not me. But, but there's a sense in which, if you're in this room this morning, um, you likely live amongst the upper echelon of the wealthy in the world. There's a fascinating website calculates for you how rich you are uh, globally. And um, so if you're a married student at, at, at school here in town, and you have no kids, and your combined income is $25,000. Okay, let's say that's your income. Um, according to this website, the How Rich I Am calculator, uh, if you have a household income of $25,000, you are in the richest 14% of people in the world, the top 14% in the world, if your combined income is, is twenty five dollars Now, if you're, if you're a double income, no kids kind of a household, and you're pulling in $100,000, you are in the top 1% in the world. Friends, we are the rich that Paul is talking about. This teaching is for us. And in a very real sense, Paul's sticks and stones are warning us in love to beware of the love of money that's seducing us all. We dare not get comfortable in our increasing wealth without increasing our generosity as well. And that's where Paul's about to go. Uh, in these closing verses, where he addresses the rich, 
Paul shows us, he showed us what we were to pursue, now he's showing us how to flee the love of money. He says in verse 17, don't be proud, right? Pride stalks the wealthy. It makes you look down on those who have less and make assumptions about their character or worse, assumptions about their worth. Don't be proud. Scripture says even our ability to make wealth comes from God. Deuteronomy 8 says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. It comes from God. It's not you. Next, Paul says in verse 17, don't hope in your wealth because it is so uncertain. The book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom literature speaks about it. It says in verse 23, chapter 23, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. And I think our, uh, our congregation has been made aware um, recently, as you just heard, hey, house fires happen when you least expect it, and literally it can all go up in smoke. Um, there was a study that found that about 70% of people who had um, a windfall of cash, you know, think uh, lottery winners and such like that, where they got a large amount of cash that came in, 70% of them in a handful of years would have lost it all. 70% of the people who had those kind of windfalls of cash. Don't hope in wealth. It is so uncertain. Instead, Paul says, hope in God who gives us all things for our enjoyment, right? He's our only hope for soul satisfaction. Listen, listen to the saddest language of satisfaction from the scriptures. Jeremiah says it beautifully. I'll feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Just a couple verses later, he says again, I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. Psalm 107, the Lord satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And this is a vivid contrast with what scripture teaches about wealth and satisfaction. Ecclesiastes says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So all these things, Paul is saying, are safeguards to help us resist and even flee the love of money, which is a snare set for our soul. But his main antidote is what follows in verse 18. Uh, look at verse 18 with me. Of the rich, he says, they are to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they, they may take hold of that which is truly life. So he says it like four times. Do good, be rich in good works, um, be generous, be ready to share. Right? This is a critical part of the remedy against falling prey to the snare of the love of money. He says it stores up a different kind of treasure an elsewhere kind of treasure. Jesus called it treasure in heaven. And uh, Randy Alcorn has written a wonderful little book called um, The Treasure Principle. And in it, he talks about, uh, kind of gives us an illustration of this different kind of treasure that Jesus and Paul are talking about. He says, imagine you're living at the end of the Civil War 
You're living in the South, but you're a Northerner. It's okay, some of you. You're just pretending. Okay. <laughs> Actually, not a Northerner. Just pretending. So you live in the South, but you're a Northerner. And you plan to move back home as soon as the war is over. And while in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now, suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? Well, he says if you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have value once the war is over. Keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. And then he says, as a Christian, you have inside knowledge of an eventual worldwide upheaval caused by Christ's return. This is the ultimate insider trading tip. Earth's currency will become worthless when Christ returns or when you die. Whichever comes first, and either event could happen at any time. He says investment experts, known as market timers, read signs that the stock market is about to take a downward turn, then recommend switching funds immediately into more dependable vehicles such as money markets or treasury bills or certificates of deposit. He says Jesus functions here as the foremost market timer. He tells us to once and for all switch investment vehicles. He instructs us to transfer our funds from earth, which is volatile and ready to take a permanent dive, to heaven, which is totally dependable, insured by God himself, and is coming soon to forever replace earth's economy. Christ's financial forecast for earth is bleak, but he's unreservedly bullish about investing in heaven, where every market indicator is eternally positive. He says there's nothing wrong with Confederate money as long as you understand its limits. Realizing its value is temporary should radically affect your investment strategy. To accumulate vast earthly treasures that you can't possibly hold onto for long is equivalent to stockpiling Confederate money even though you know it's about to become worthless. According to Jesus, storing up earthly treasures isn't simply wrong, it's just plain stupid, he says. So the rich... And that's us, right? We're to do good. We're to be rich in good works. We're to be generous and ready to share. This is Paul's prescription for protecting our souls from the perils of the love of money. Okay? He says, give it away. That's how you protect it. You be generous. And these are strong words from Paul. They are those sticks and stones of love. For us, designed to keep us from being comfortable with simply getting more and more. We ignore Paul's words at our peril. And it is this reality that underlies what we're, what we're talking about today with our Gen 12 offering. Um, we take up pledges for it this time of year, each year. It gets its name from Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 where God says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So God promises to bless Abram and make him a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing is the shorthand we often use for it. And our Gen 12 offering is a way we live out that principle together as God's people at North Wake. It's a concerted, altogether effort where we are extra generous to be a blessing to our neighbors 
and to the, to the nations. Um, so that's the first reason. We're blessed by God in order to be a blessing. But there's a second reason that underlies this Gen 12 offering, and that's what we just looked at in 1 Timothy 6, that glad, sacrificial generosity safeguards our hearts from the love of money. And so each year, since we paid off our mortgage on this facility, North Wakers pledge monies to give away to bless others in the year to come. And over the next three weeks, you're going to have a chance to do that here when you come, come to worship each Sunday to make a pledge that, that you're going to give away to be extra generous for the coming year. Um, and, and our elders have marked out recipients for those funds. So let me tell you where the monies that you give next year will go. They fall into three buckets. Um, international, sending missionaries, which is international. Church planning, which is national. And um, loving neighbors, which is right here in, in Wake Forest. So let me explain to you the, the international category, which is full of some really exciting opportunities we're going to have to give next year. There are three targets in that international bucket. Um, the first thing is to recognize that, I don't know if you know, but God is sovereignly rearranging the missionary playing field. Um, missionaries are being pressed out of China and India and places like that. We no longer have any missionaries in China. They've been forced out by government oppression and such. Um, and so many of them have relocated now to Europe where the nations are, are migrating to from all kinds of countries that are difficult to reach. And so places like China and India, Afghanistan, many, many refugees in Europe. So North Wake now has more than 10 missionary families living and working in Europe, um, whereas probably five years ago we may have had one. Um, so God is rearranging the playing field, and because of that concentration of missionaries in Europe, we are planning to take a team to lead a retreat in Europe next fall for our North Wake families that are in that region, those 10, 11, plus the others who can come from, from nearby. Um, so, so your funds will help pull off that retreat that we'll be offering to encourage and strengthen our missionaries, many of whom are in a new field and really experiencing some difficult times having left one field and having to restart, learn new language and culture and all that. So first thing... Um, that missionary retreat in Europe. The second thing that God is doing that's really exciting is Northwake has over 30 missionaries working internationally around the world. We now have more than 25 who are preparing to go overseas in the next two to three years. So Northwake's missionary team is going to double in the next couple of years. Um, in light of that opportunity, we are going to need to care for a congregation of over 100 people scattered all around the globe. Um, and uh, to do that, we'd like to add a new part-time position to our staff that does missionary care. Uh, alongside Rob Craig, Rob's a little overwhelmed trying to take care of all these people, so we're going to add a part-time position that really focuses in on that, on that. And Shanna Smith, formerly known as Shanna Heath, has really good international experience in Asia um, doing this very thing for the International Mission Board. And God has brought her here, so we're going to move Shanna over out of her children's ministry responsibilities and have her work at training our new missionaries we're sending out and then caring for them once they get to the field. 
um, so that we can help them be successful in this new work. And then, as many of you know, Kelly Sissel will be taking over, is already taking over our children's ministry work. So in, as soon as the dust settles, I'll send you out like um, an email with who's on first with our staff and elders because they're all kind of moving around, changing, changing roles these days. But I'll let you know all of that. So that's the second thing internationally. A third thing internationally that is really, God's really doing some exciting work is, is HIT, H-I-T, the Hispaniola Institute of Theology. Um, this was started by a North Waker, Noah Joyner, um, back in 2014. He had been working in Haiti and saw a need to train Haitian church leaders who are living in the DR and equip them to minister to Haitians there and in, and in Haiti, in the Dominican Republic. So this ministry now has gone from just a little handful of people, they now have over 100 students and eight staff, um, including Keverly, who was also sent down there from North Wake to train women um, in, in the theolo theological institute there. And we want to use Gen 12 funds to help fuel and wisely facilitate that growth, that almost explosive growth of this beautiful ministry that is going on in the Dominican Republic. So that will be where your monies will go internationally. Nationally, we plant churches. And we have a couple of really beautiful opportunities where your funds will be distributed next year. One is to partner with a former North Waker who is prayerfully preparing to plant a new church over towards Winston-Salem um, in an area that um, state missiologists and evangelists have researched that's called one of the pockets of lostness. It's a term that's used to describe communities where more than 70% of the people do not know Jesus and there's very little gospel opportunity or initiative to tell them about Jesus in their community. And this uh, young couple is planning to start that work in one of those pockets of lostness over towards the Winston-Salem area and we have high hopes for what God's gonna do as we're able to partner with them and there'll be more details about that in the future. Second opportunity is we continue to support our Hispanic granddaughter church in D.C. They minister to the poorest of the poor in D.C., uh, many in the immigrant community there, uh, migrant community and our refugees. And so they are always in need of resources from the outside because those people are, don't have the resources to support and sustain that ministry. So we partner with our church plant in D.C., Restoration Church, that we planted, um, and they then planted... Um, this church um, that you see some, some of the folks' pictures there uh, in D.C. that focuses on the Hispanic community in a city of over 80,000 Hispanics. This is a vital work that is really flourishing and doing beautiful things there. So that's what we'll do nationally with church planning. And then the last one, locally, um, we love our neighbors. And so we want to do, as we did last year, we're going to ask you to make a core pledge to the international and national things, and then make a neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor pledge separate from that, which means that's money that you'll pledge but not give to the church. You'll pledge it, you'll put it in your pocket, and you'll have it available for people that you meet who are in need here in our community. It could be somebody that has a medical need or loses their job or somebody by the roadside that you meet. Whatever, you are going to be, you're going to have those resources set aside for the people that God brings across your path so that you can share with them um, the love of Jesus, both in word 
and deed. This is a direct application of what we just saw in 1 Timothy 6.18, right? Be generous and ready to share. Okay? So you'll be ready to share because you're going to set aside a certain amount of money that you're just walking around looking for somebody to give it to and praying that God would give you that opportunity. Um, so these funds uh, are for that purpose. And we've done, we did it this year, and I've heard stories about helping families that were about to be evicted have transitional housing, help with medical bills that couldn't be paid, support for a family whose primary wage earner tragically passed away, and there's a number of other stories. Some of you still have your money that you pledged this year. You're like, oh, yeah, I forgot. I've got that neighbor-to-neighbor money, and I've not given it away yet. No, no worries. Um, we're, we're scoping out several large needs that are in our community that we can kind of pile on together. And if you still have resources you'd like to give, we'll let you know about those next month um, as, as the year draws to a close. But, you know, God may yet bring somebody across your path to give those resources to. So be prayerful and be ready about that. And we'll, we'll get to do that again next year. When you came in, you should have received one of these Gen 12 cards. Um, over the next three weeks, I'd like you to prayerfully fill that out and turn it in. You can, in the next three weeks in services, you can always drop it in the boxes at the back on December the 5th. We'll have a time during the service to, to turn those in. But... Um, yeah, look those over. If you have any questions, you can contact us in the church office. We're, we're glad to help you understand what's going on, how this fits into your scheme of being generous, and where these resources are going. But we get to join God in some really beautiful work in the coming year. So what we'd like to begin today is not necessarily turning those cards in, but just with a time of prayer to ask God how we should be generous um, in response of how he has blessed us. So if you'll bow with me in prayer, I'd like to pray through this passage we just studied for us this morning. So let's pray together. Lord, we bow before you and we acknowledge that um, the way we think about money is the difference than the way you want us to often. So Lord, grant us faith to believe that godliness with contentment really is the great gain. And then help us, Lord, not to hope in the uncertainty of our riches, which are um, here today and gone tomorrow. But if we have our needs met, to be content with that. Protect us, Lord, from the desire to be rich, which leads us into temptation and a snare, senseless, harmful desires that can plunge us into ruin and destruction. Lord, help us to believe that it really is true that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And that some have even wandered away from the faith because of it. Lord, help us to flee these things and to pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Lord, we are amongst the ones you've blessed greatly, the rich in this present age. Help us not to be prideful, Help us not to set our hopes on our riches, but on you, because you have richly provided us with everything that we enjoy. Help us do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. Storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future that we might take hold of that which is truly life.